Every year about this time, can, is it on? I can't tell. I'm just loud. All right. Every year about this time, I come to remind you of something that you may or may not have forgotten. But as part of the Covenant College community, we hope to remind you that you're part of a larger story than just your own. We hope to remind you that you're part of the Christian story. This is part of us trying to live faithfully before the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of Mary and Matthew, the God of Sister Macrina and Bernard of Clairvaux. This is the God of the living, the God who reigns and rules even now. This is the God who's been faithful through the ages. But Covenant College is not just part of the general Christian tradition, but also the particular tradition of the Protestant Reformation, and in particular, the Reformed tradition. We trace our heritage back to the protest movement as an effort to try and be faithful to the scriptures and to always be open to reform when we think our lives or our doctrine have started to go astray. So with the Reformation and the reformers in particular, we, without apology, hold to the primacy of God in all things, to the sufficiency and authority of Scripture, and to the radical nature of the gospel of grace, only realized in the person and work of Christ. But at Covenant, one of the ways we want to honor that tradition is that during this season, it's not Halloween, right? It's, I know some of you grew up in certain homes where you could dress up like Martin Luther or John Calvin and that was Halloween for you. But anyways, but we, we celebrate Reformation Day lectures and we look for people to come and address our community who both appreciate the depth of our tradition, who are informed and live into that tradition, but who also see it as a living one. We're not just interested in stories about history. We're interested in, in what this God is doing and has done in the past and is doing in the present. And that brings me to introduce our speaker today and tomorrow. Colin Hansen is the vice president for, uh, for content and editor-in-chief for the Gospel Coalition. Many of you know the website and the organization and its international reach. Uh, Colin has spoken, uh, he's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, he's been on CNN, Fox News, NPR, BBC, ABC News, etc. You get the idea. His voice is widely trusted and valued even by those who represent different views. He hosts a podcast called Gospel Bound and he's written many books and his most recent is one that's the basis for why I have him here. It's called Gospel Bound. And we live in it, he's a, he's a journalist by background, and he knows what it is to investigate the realities on the ground, and it's easy to become cynical. And one of the things I so appreciate about what he does in this book is that without lying about how bad things are, including in the church, he also looks, he and his co-author uh, with her, they look for signs of God's faithfulness and of the church's faithfulness and what that looks like. And you won't be surprised to find it doesn't look like angry tweets. It doesn't look like political vengeance. It looks like sacrifice and love. 
So he will be speaking now. He will be speaking again here at 4 p.m. Uh, a chapel called No Apology Needed, and you get chapel credit for that. And then it's unusual, but tomorrow here at 11, he will also be speaking. So uh, please do try and remember to come tomorrow. With that said, please welcome Colin Hansen. Well, it is an honor to be with you here today, to be back on your lovely campus. It was a nice evening drive last night from, up from Birmingham, Alabama, where I live with my wife and family. Shout out, Birmingham. Hello. There we are. All right. Roll Tide. Hey, I got that right. All right. Okay, we're off to a bad start. Okay. <laughs> well, again, it is a delight. I mean, I, I, don't, uh, I don't dress up my children yet in Calvin or Luther uh, outfits, but I do enjoy this time of year, and especially being able to think about the amazing heritage that we have in the Reformation. And that's something I, I have the distinct privilege of being able to talk with you about these three different times, but trying to also bridge from that time until today. What difference does this make for us today? Three times every week you sit here in chapel and you listen to someone who pretends, or someone who tries, at least, to speak for God by explaining a book that was written at least 2,000 years ago. Do you ever think about how rare that experience is today and how crazy many people think we are gathered here? Imagine if you're the one who's up here saying, thus saith the Lord. Now, there's many reasons why it's not crazy. It's not crazy because we live in a time of what's been called the death of expertise. It's not so much that we don't recognize authorities today. It's that everyone is an authority now. Everyone is an authority now with no reference point to that authority outside of the self. Let's think about how we got here. And to do that, you need to travel with me back to July 2nd. 1505 into a road outside the village of Stadernheim, just north of Erfurt in what's central Germany today. The solitary traveler that day was 21-year-old Martin Luther. He watched as dark clouds filled the sky. The sky erupted in a rain shower more intense than what we had this morning. Lightning struck so close that Luther physically fell down. I've been stuck inside Luther's house in Wittenberg during a thunderstorm. You can visit it today, and it is no joke. It is no joke. Luther was so scared that he yelled, St. Anne, help me. I will become a monk. St. Anne, Jesus' grandmother, she was considered the patron saint of miners. That's what Luther's dad had done. He owned copper Mind. So when he looked, when he experienced danger and he looked for help, he looked above. When he was looking for danger and when he, was, when he was looking for help, he looked above. He looked to the skies. He looked to heaven. Now you need to fast forward with me to 1949. Erfurt has become part of the German Democratic Republic, which was neither democratic nor a republic. This was communist East Germany. It was illegal in East Germany, atheistic, to look to the heavens, to look above for salvation. The gaze turned from the vertical toward 
the horizontal, to each other. Humanity, humanity could deliver its own heaven on earth without God and without saints. The heavens then, the heavens could be harnessed for power to build this worker's paradise together from the horizontal or from the vertical to the horizontal. Now fast forward again, 2017, 500th anniversary of Luther's famous protest. I walk the beautiful streets of Erfurt and it is not a worker's paradise today. Capitalism took over in the 1990s, but you're not gonna catch anybody's eyes trying to look at their gaze horizontally today in this city where Luther had botched his first mass by spilling the wine and almost dropping the bread in 1507. These days, if somebody wants to know if a thunderstorm is coming, they don't look to the skies. Where do they look? Of course, they look to their phones to see what the weather is going to do. Everyone walks around to Erfurt, hunched over their phones with this little customized rectangular window onto the world where we don't need any kind of mediator between us where we project our authority on Twitter and fabricate our identity on Instagram. I'd like to think that if Luther were walking around Erfurt today, he would immediately notice this posture, this hunched over posture, because it was Luther, the former Augustinian monk, who described sin in his commentary on Romans as being curved inward on the self. Being curved inward on the self. In Luther's day, it was assumed that everyone believed in God. You had to go to great lengths to opt out. And in our day, belief in God remains prevalent inside and outside our tradition. But this God is different. This God exists to serve our personal interest. He is not often considered an authority, and doubt shrouds any biblical teaching that would counter our instincts and our desires. So this morning, we're going to explore why doubt feels so natural to us today, even at Covenant College, and why faith in an authority outside yourself is still the only way to enjoy true freedom, as it was to Martin Luther more than 500 years ago. So let's start. How did doubt, how did doubt become our default. You can tell this story in three stages of what's known as secularism. Three stages of secularism. The medieval church, starting off in Luther's day, had one kind of secularism. That's where clergy claimed the exclusive rights to mediate between everyone else, that's the secular, and then God. Okay, so remember that's the, that's the vertical gaze here. The secular is all of us, the clergy, they are the sacred. That's the first form of secularism. That then shifts to a second form of secularism. The Nazis and the communists, they practiced this version. That's where the state or where the nation, they come to take the place of God. Any other religious belief or practice is outlawed. That's the horizontal gaze. We are looking only at each other now. No reference to the heavens. But our own day practices a third and distinct kind of secularism. The best account can be found in the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor's 2008 book, A Secular Age. 
In Taylor's analysis, secularism is not so much denying the existence of God or banishing him from the public square. It is instead shrinking him inside the box of the self. In this kind of secularism, you can still go to church, you can still enroll at Covenant College and believe in God, but you may still actually worship the self above all. Let me give an example that hits kind of close to home for me and my experience. Try this. Think about many of the testimonies of faith that you'll often hear. Pull Jesus out of those testimonies, maybe even those that you've shared. Pull Jesus out, replace him with a spouse or a friend, a fitness regimen or a diet, and see if there's any change in the testimony. In fact, many testimonies I hear today, they don't even mention Jesus at all. They sound something like this. Once I was lost in the ignorance of my parents, my home church, my town, my school, then I found meaning or purpose, hope, identity in separating myself from the foolish ideas inherited by the authorities of my youth. You can see here God is not the authority. The Bible isn't the authority. The authority is the sovereign self. And this is what Taylor would describe as our age of authenticity. It's the gospel of self-fulfillment or of self-actualization, but it's not the gospel of Jesus. Jesus is the one who warned us that unless we lose our lives for the sake of Christ and the gospel, then we'll never find them and we'll never be truly free. He he tells us to believe in him, to pick up our cross, and to follow him because he is the treasure that is buried inside that field, so valuable that we'd sell everything we have to go buy that field and enjoy him as the treasure. Jesus will never be content to be the hedge on our bets for the good life. He won't live inside this box of the self. He must be the ultimate authority in all aspects of our lives because he deserves nothing less. And this is the Jesus that Luther rediscovered in his Bible. This Jesus, not the God who only stands against us in judgment for sin, but the God who would go to the cross to take sin on himself. And Jesus now imputes his righteousness to everyone who believes by faith alone by setting them free. It seems as I look around at many Christians today that Christians have often grabbed one side or the other of Luther. They like one aspect of Luther but not the other. They choose either Luther's courageous side and they're very quick to denounce sin. But I see so often they seem to live under a mountain of man-made rules and not in the freedom of the gospel. And there are others who love other aspects of Luther. They enjoy the freedom of grace that he preached, but at the same time, they don't have the courage to denounce what the Bible prohibits. Both sides, ironically, live under the authority of humanity. They're working toward the self. The first does this by adding rules to how we should dress and whom you must vote for. 
The other edits the law of God to what the world today will already accept. But they can't combine freedom and courage together in a way that only comes from the gospel, that only comes from Jesus. This is what I would call gospel bound. When we are bound or tied to the gospel that saved us from God's judgment, then we abound in hope. We abound in joy. As we read in Romans 15, 13, the God of hope fills believers with all joy and all peace, joy and peace in believing. And that is a freedom that nothing and no one in this world can ever take away from you. But the beautiful thing about this freedom is that we don't use it just to enrich ourselves. This freedom is what gives us the courage to fight against corrupt regimes, whether that be the medieval church or the Nazis or the communists or any evil we see still today. Galatians 5.13 tells us, for we, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Any love that's been unbound from God, it, it doesn't serve the other. It ultimately comes back to serve the self. And as a result, that kind of love is not strong enough to risk the mob's threats. We need a love that comes from above, that comes from outside of ourselves, that comes from an authority that does not depend on ourselves. We need the promise of 1 John 4.19, we love because God first loved us. So you can't truly enjoy freedom and courage unless you're bound to this authority outside yourself, to an authority that is above all other pretenders in this world. So the question is, how do we help the world find this freedom and this courage together? And how do we dispel the doubt that continues to linger even among Christians, even here in chapel at Covenant College. To do this, I think we need churches that are open and safe. Churches that are open and safe. Now, I don't know how much time you spend with unbelievers. It can be hard in a Christian college in the Bible Belt. But even if it's just a little, you know we don't necessarily have the best reputation as Christians. The internet, after all, ensures that if someone somewhere claiming to be a Christian does something wrong, we all know about it instantly. Every random word or act from Christians can be imputed to all of us on the whole. And the more you read and watch and listen to these Christians, you're tempted yourself to wonder, is this gospel even real? Is this Christianity even worth it? How can Jesus be risen from the dead if this is how his followers act. This is a big reason why now we all believe through doubting. We travel to faith through skepticism, which is why we need a change in our church culture. Why we need a change in our church culture, because the churches that I see evangelizing successfully today and helping young Christians make their way in the world are marked by openness and safety. They speak firmly where the Bible is firm. They submit to God's authority. They are courageous. But they also admit mystery and charity where the Bible is not quite so clear. They don't fight and die on every single hill. 
and they resist modern-day Pharisees who attach their cultural and political agendas to the gospel because they are free. I believe only these safe and open churches will thrive in a post-Christian secular age. In some ways it's similar, in some ways it's different from the situation that Luther encountered. That as in his day, people often thought they knew what Christianity was all about, but they hadn't actually read the Bible. In our day, many people who have never read the Bible already pretend to know that they hate it or claim to know that they hate it or at least that they don't need it. Some of them, maybe they've grown up in the Catholic Church. They're angry at leaders who covered up abuse. Could be other churches as well. Or they hold liberal political views and they think believing the Bible means they have to vote Republican. And they think Christians hold back cultural progress. In these challenges, we have to deprogram false expectations and distorted understandings as much as we then positively construct what Christians actually believe. And this is similar to what Luther faced. He had to, he had to re-catechize, recatechize Christians who were trying to understand a true biblical theology for the first time. And Luther didn't do this just sitting inside his office writing treatises against the Pope. He built a community in Wittenberg of Christians who actually believed and obeyed the Bible. And that's what we need above all else today, communities of openness and safety, freedom and courage, communities that will prepare us for life, that prepare us for life, including death and suffering. Because for all the differences between Luther's day and our own, we're all the same in one way. Because our secular age can't solve suffering and death either. We spend billions and trillions on cancer and vaccines so that later we can die of something else. But can, what can we uniquely contribute then as Christians? What do we have to offer the world? We have, after all, the words of eternal life. We have the promise of reunion one day with loved ones for meaning when we undergo suffering. The experience of joy of knowing a God who is fully good and fully in control at the same time. A Jesus who loves us perfectly and never leaves us and never forsakes us. Who wouldn't want to trust the Bible as authority outside the self when it tells us about such hope? And only in Christianity do you get true community, which is what we and our neighbors today desperately need. It's what no one can find today apart from the gospel because what kind of society do you get when everyone lives for themselves and demands that everyone else affirm their autonomous choices? Well, that's what you get in our society today with narcissism run amok from politics to media to sports and everywhere in between. But you don't get true community. You get instead a circle of friends texting selfies to one another. You get the constant threat of internet infamy. Our churches, by contrast, even Covenant College, can offer a different, deeper, more lasting community, a community that, that, that surrounds the Word of God with God's Word as the authority. It can transcend class, transcend ethnicity, politics, age, geography. The churches that stick out in communities are because they have, 
the churches, I'll put it this way, the churches that will stick out in communities are ones where people can come together across these differences at a time when so many others have retreated to the safe spaces of ideological conformity. Real community breaks out when we combine courage and freedom. When we trust the authority of God with courage, we can ask hard questions. We can talk about our doubts. When we enjoy the freedom of the gospel, we can share our real fears, our real anxieties. We can confess our sin and our pain with people who don't look like us or don't enhance our social standing. Let me share with you the secret of evangelism today. Meet your neighbor. Ask about their lives. Involve them in yours. Community has suffered so much in the age of the autonomous self and these affinity networks, not to mention COVID-19, that just being a nice, relational, interested person is going to make you stand out. And I want to close with two things that kill evangelism. It's when our churches don't give freedom to ask hard questions and when our churches don't show courage to stand on the authority of God's word. I bet you've seen these problems play out. Think with me a couple different parables as we close. Imagine someone who grows up in the church where the Bible is authoritative, but the Bible is not obeyed. And they're told that doubt is a moral weakness that they can never reveal. Worse, they're told to fear unbelievers and liberals, what do you think happens to that person when he or she grows up? A person, that, the people that they're told to fear when they actually meet them turn out to be pretty nice, actually. In fact, these unbelievers turn out to be nicer than a lot of church people. And all of a sudden you stumble across an account on TikTok making a couple common arguments about shellfish and you don't know how to answer those questions about the Bible. And all of a sudden, just like that, 18 plus years of church teaching about the Bible just vanishes, poof, it's just gone. This Christian who'd grown up in the church, catechized in the church, maybe even enrolled in Covenant College, would rather hang out with this new group of open-minded people who seemed so welcoming and so smart. Let's try this parable, though, in reverse. Let's try a different scenario. Imagine someone who grew up in a home that's been broken apart by the sexual revolution. This young man could never trust anyone to care for him. No one looked out for him. Stepdad sexually abused him, led to gender confusion. Doesn't even know anyone who goes to church, but he knows that it's a place that would never welcome someone like him because he doesn't have his act together. He doesn't know what he's supposed to wear or what he's supposed to say about, around Christians. Plus, those churches, they seem really mean on TV. How could their Bible ever relate to anything in his life? Why would he trust this ancient book? He can't even trust his own parents if he could even find them. Now let's imagine that a Christian an older Christian takes a surprising interest in this young man. This person seemed to really care. 
person didn't, didn't seem to have any agenda, didn't, there was nothing apparently that he would get out of this relationship. He didn't seem threatened at all by any questions or even jabs at his faith, didn't act much like those folks on TV, didn't seem obsessed with politics or sex, but he wasn't short on conviction and courage either. In fact, he knew his Bible really well. You could ask him just about anything, and this older Christian, he had, he had a verse for it. He could take you to that place. The weirdest thing is that he really seemed to believe what he said. And he seemed to enjoy a freedom from caring about what other people thought about him. Eventually, this older Christian, he and his family welcomed this young man for dinner. They sat together and they talked. I mean, who even does that anymore? Has dinner together, they sit around and they talk, it's crazy. No one even had a phone at the table. Even crazier, no one had a phone at the table. The family prayed together. Afterward, they read from the Bible and they talked about it for a few minutes. And they ended by singing together. Nothing fancy, just some old, beautiful song. This young man, he then met the family's friends when they tagged along, when he tagged along with them to church. And those folks, they didn't seem quite so weird either. Well, I mean, they were weird in the sense that they were overly friendly. That was pretty difficult. That was kind of awkward. But he could tell that they really knew and actually cared for each other. They sang some new, unfamiliar songs with emotion. And then the strangest thing happened. A preacher stood up and opened an ancient book. And it's as if that book had been written yesterday. Somehow these unfamiliar words came alive. This young man had never met this preacher before, but it's as if the preacher knew his entire life story, as if the message had been delivered just for him because he sensed that here are the words of eternal life. He felt freedom that he never believed was possible before. My friends, doubt feels natural today because Christians struggle to combine courage with freedom, as Luther had experienced in the Reformation. But all of it is available to us, courage and freedom together, the same way it was to Martin Luther in the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed in his word. And when we're bound to this ancient gospel, then we abound in hope for God's work in the future. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your never-ending goodness to us. God, your grace abounds to sinners like us. We pray, God, that you might unleash among us a revival of freedom and courage together. We pray, God, because we desperately need you. Our time needs you. We need you, God. And we invite you to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.